This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. When I decided to finally schedule my first interview in the new studio, I knew that I just didn't want anybody. I wanted to have a conversation that was not only interesting, but it would be a whole lot of fun. All the people on my shortlist are amazing photographers, so it wasn't just about talent or or name recognition. I wanted both of us to have a great time. I was still wrestling with who to invite when I had the chance to hear Thomas Michael Alleman do a presentation at the Los Angeles Center of Photography. I was impressed with his body of work, but it was what I heard in his voice that sold me on him. As he talked to us, I was swept away by his love and enthusiasm for photography. It was the kind of childlike passion that those of us who are lucky get to retain or rediscover. Even before he was halfway through, I knew I had my man. He has had a successful career as a photojournalist and commercial photographer. He has accumulated a wealth of knowledge and experience that he generously shares with his students. But it's his willingness to be honest about his own struggles to become a better photographer that make him so exceptional. You know, I won't, I, I won't regurgitate that whole three-month season of discovery, but to say that at every juncture of discovery, it was I made a photograph by accident that I ended up loving without knowing why. And I would, I would have my contact sheets, which, you know, in those days, that was the 80s, we had contact sheets. I actually slept with my contact sheets because out of all the crap on this roll, there was one shot that really moved me different than the others. I didn't know why I had made it and I don't know why I like it. But and I figured I have to figure this out. And in some cases, I didn't finally figure it out until years later. But I kind of figured out what were the components of my response. What I was able to somewhat break down, like what is the cool thing about this mystery picture? And then I would just go and, as you have just said, you just shoot, 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 shoot with very little guidance. Like, I don't know why I'm in this room and I don't know why I'm uh, motivated toward that corner where those people are. Uh, And you shoot, 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 make a lot of mistakes. Uh, My contact sheets from those days are hilarious because you can see I'm trying to do 17 things going, I'm not sure which of these is is kind of the next thing that I'm after. But there's always one which is circled and starred and starred and circled. I go, oh my God, I can't believe there it is again but I don't know why. It's his ability to look at his photography and his process in insightful ways that has allowed him to redefine himself as a photographer numerous times. Thomas recognizes that his evolution has been shaped as much by his failures as they have been by his successes. The obvious part about the failure is You can overthink it, you can push it too hard, you can contrive it too much, you can think there's something there that isn't. When I look at my best pictures and my and my quote unquote worst pictures, if you can say it that way, the difference is razor thin between a photograph which is so well put together, you go, Oh, that's great, look at all the stuff, how it works. And then the one right next to it, which is just 
you went too far. There's too much sweat on it. There's too much effort in that picture. It's really clear that you were overworking it and that there's not as much there as you wish there were. We'll talk to Thomas about his early work documenting his family, as well as how a toy camera provided him the breakthrough that his other professional cameras couldn't. Welcome to the Candid Frame. I was really in, uh, uh, impressed with your presentation. Oh, thank you. That, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, not just what you said, but your just enthusiasm, your energy. Uh, that was just like, uh, I know. That was really great. I know. Yeah, put me in front of a room and I, I kind of go a little crazy. <laughs> I was the life of the party in seventh grade. That's one of the things I want to ask you about. Okay. So what kind of kid were you when you were growing up? Uh, well... At the time, I thought I was very special, multi-talented, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as a photographer, especially working for newspapers, uh, I spent a lot of time in schools and high schools, junior highs, and I began to uh, recognize that those kids, God bless them, uh, (laughs) are a dime a dozen. I mean, there's always, you know, every high school's got nine uh, special kids who... You know, they, they skateboard and they write plays and they can hit a baseball and they also can sing on key, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was that kind of kid. I was precocious, bit of a dilettante. I'm happy to say that in my grown-up life, especially when it comes to photography, I developed my own voice. But looking back, it needn't necessarily have been so. In other words, I was a really good mimic when I was a young kid. And that's, hmm. that's just, that's a simple, that's a temperamental thing. I could, I could mimic voices. I could mimic drawing styles. I could mimic writing styles. And so it gave me a lot of cachet in the junior high and especially the high school because I'd read a, a Woody Allen thing in the New Yorker. And then I'd write some kooky postmodern Woody Allen thing that most high schools, it would never have a high schoolers, it wouldn't have occurred to them to write a takeoff on Proust. Okay. And yet yeah. I was writing a takeoff on Proust. Why? Because Woody Allen did. And so my teacher said, this kid is spectacular. <laughs> and I was just, I was mimicking. And so I could have spent my entire 20s mimicking. And then probably, you know, that fizzles out because the rest of the world catches up to you and they go, dude, you know, I read that yeah. Woody Allen thing too, right? So, so it is if I had continued as, as a mimic purely, whether it was playing those same old Jackson Brown style songs or writing the Woody Allen thing or making a certain photograph the way Diane Harbus did. You know, by the time you're 30, people, again, people catch up to you. Your enthusiasm and interest fizzles out because I'm not sure there's much kind of emotional calories yeah. that you get from that. So... That's what I was. I was, a, I was a kind of talented kid, of which there are a trillion. I was a great mimic. And so I was the, the cool, funny, class clown kid who worked at the newspaper and the yearbook and the blah, blah. Always kind of out front, showing off. Yeah. Well, that, that mimicry uh, sort, of, sort of makes sense because early on your work was inspired by a variety of different mm-hmm. photographers yep. like Sylvia Plachi, yep. Winogrand. Yep. So uh, that ability to be able to not only copy someone, but to really evaluate what they're doing. Thank you. Well, that, that I, as I tell my students, that's exactly what that is. And again, over the long run, it doesn't have much 
uh, emotional calories. It's not going to keep you sustained in your soul for longer than a couple, three years, but it gets you started on things because you can break stuff down. You can look at a thing and go, oh, I get what it is about that. Mm-hmm. It's big, it's round, it's purple, it's got five layers, and it's, you know, whatever. You break it down, you go, oh, I get that. Okay. And then I'm going to do that too. And I think that's just, it's a little, it's a, call it a skill or just talk, call it a little temperamental thing that you can you can see it and almost turn it around so you go okay I'm looking at it and now I'm seeing me doing that I can break it down and do that and again that'll only get you so far but it gets you started well, what do you think is necessary to really make that your own because what I see a lot of is that some photographers will go out they'll emulate mm-hmm. someone else mm-hmm. largely to try to figure out the technique of how they mm-hmm. did it and yep. they'll go there and they'll figure it out and then they'll move on to something else uh, another another inspiration they'll mm-hmm. emulate that but they don't seem to be able to put those influences together in a way that allows them to discover mm-hmm. their their own, own voice mm-hmm. What's happening? What's the disconnect for people who just sort of, you know, they basically play hopscotch. They just move from one point to another and never really able to make it a a cohesive whole. Well, I'll tell you, in my commercial life and in my uh, career as a photojournalist, I perpetrated that very thing you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that especially as a photojournalist, an extension of being the kind of street photographer that you know me to be, I was able to find my own voice. But... Still in all, there was that hopscotching thing where you figure out how somebody used the big light. And then you figure out how somebody used the ring flash. And you can, as you say, you know, hopscotch or skip across the the surface of these various popular techniques. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that's completely encouraged. When you're in that business, especially when I was a magazine photographer, staying abreast of the current techniques was part of what editors always wanted. And and there was a certain point in about 2003 where my career was slightly in jeopardy because I didn't want to follow the current trends. I didn't want to be somebody who did that. But a couple editors told me, if we don't start seeing such and such a look from you. It was a desaturated look. What it was is mm-hmm. if we if you don't start desaturating these images, either we're going to do it or we'll start using you less because we we need the people who are uh, producing for us to uh, um, give us material we can use in the current climate, in the current, you know, kind of visual era. So I did learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. But to your direct question... I remember a, a quote, which I'm sh- sure you must have heard, from Ira Glass. And so he's the, the producer and the founder and the guiding light of This American Life. And his famous quote was, and of course I paraphrase and not as well as he said it, there are young folks, lots of young folks, whether they're artists or writers or yada yada, whatever, who they attain good taste. They have great taste. And so the classic the classic dude mm-hmm. is the record store guy, right? The the um, uh, the, the smart aleck record store guy who knows more about Lou Reed than you do, right? And he's got great taste. And you, you kind of think, I've got great taste. The next step is simple and direct. I, I'm going to employ my great taste and I'm going to become 
Lou Reed. I'm going to become a guy who can do that stuff. Uh, not necessarily. It takes a long time to develop your own voice, mm-hmm. to learn the skill set, of course, but also to develop your own voice. And it's super hard for a lot of people. Most people don't get there. And that's a heartbreaker. Uh, Not only for us who watch them at a distance, but for that person to constantly be frustrated. And if if they are smart and self-aware, at some point they say, geez, I'm just not getting there. I I know what the great stuff is. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm almost doing it. I'm maybe doing it. I'm occasionally doing it. But I can't do it on command. I can't always do it. I'm not confident. I can't take it deeper. I don't get why this isn't working. And I think for some people, it's just, it's dumb luck. For some other folks, it's a certain kind of training that they did or didn't get. It's a personality. It's a temperament. But but getting taste to the point where you have your voice. And I don't know how I got mine, but I'll tell you, everything in my career, because, you know, because I've done this street photography and this so-called public photography, newspapers, magazines, quote-unquote fine art, blah, blah, blah. Done a lot of different kind of stuff. But I've struggled for all of it just in terms of figuring out the vibe of it, figuring out how I can make that my own. Mm -hmm. That's been a long struggle. But the first iteration was super easy. When I first started making what we'll call, what I will call public photographs, not necessarily street photographs. It was street photograph style, Mm -hmm. Gary Winogrand, but it was the party picture style of of, um, Lee Friedlander. It was the street vibe of Gary Winogrand, the party picture style of Lee Lee Friedlander. I started making these public photographs at conventions and boxing matches and uh, Tupperware parties and, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you know, political election eve kind of thing that came to me so easily right out of the box and nothing else has ever i understood it i understood what i wanted from it Mm -hmm. i understood how it should look how one does it i got that part of it but i got what i wanted from it and how i wanted it to look and how it would move me and how i could continue going forward making those pictures it took about three months and it was a spectacular, super intense journey that I took at the age of about 25. And half of it happened utterly by accident. It was just a time where, you know, I had energy, I had interest, I had the little bit of equipment that you would need. I happened to have exactly what I needed, energy and interest. I had access to a dark room, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was I was uh, motivated in the spirit. I wanted to be an artistic entrepreneur more than anything. And now suddenly here it was. So I grabbed it by the neck and I wouldn't let go. I came into my own with that kind of photograph within three or four months. Spectacular. And to this day, that's probably the main thing that I know how to do. Everything else took three or four years of beating my head against the wall. Uh, that, that whole taste mm-hmm. thing that Ira Glass said, like, I know, I know what a certain kind of photograph is supposed to look like, and I can get 90% there, but I haven't made it my own, and it would take four or five years to get there. Yeah, yeah, I go, I've gone through those phases. Right. I, I think I'm in the midst of it right right yeah, now right and 
I think one of the keys to sort of understand that and not be discouraged is recognizing that that struggle of getting there is part and parcel of the process. Oh, yeah. And not allowing that to keep you from going out and producing the work, even if it's not hitting the mark, because right. the revelation is only going to come from producing producing the work, not thinking about it. Well, but I... I- agree with that. This story that I just told you, and I I mentioned the accidental part of it, you know, I won't won't regurgitate that whole three-month season of discovery, but to say that at every juncture of discovery, it was, I made a photograph by accident that I ended up loving without knowing why. And I would, Mm. I would have my contact sheets, which, you know, in those days, that was the eighties, we had contact sheets. I actually slept with my contact sheets because out of all the crap on this roll, there was one shot that really moved me different than the others. I didn't know why I had made it and I don't know why I like it. But and I figured I have to figure this out. And in some cases, I didn't finally figure it out until years later. Mm-hmm. But I kind of figured out what were the components of my response. I was able to somewhat break down, like, what is the cool thing about this mystery picture? And then I would just go, and as you have just said, you just shoot, 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 shoot with very little guidance. Like, I don't know why I'm in this room, and I don't know why I'm uh, motivated toward that corner where those people are. And you shoot, 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 make a lot of mistakes. Uh, My contact sheets from those days are hilarious because (laughs) you can see I'm trying to do 17 things going, I'm not sure which of these is is kind of the next thing that I'm after. But there's always one which is circled and starred and starred and circled, where I go, oh my God, I can't believe there it is again. But I don't know why. Mm. I've been photographing downtown Los Angeles for over 25 years. Okay. And um, I think for the first 10 years, I was shooting on chrome, Kodachrome, negative film. And recent last year, I got all the slides out and I started going through them, trying to figure out, okay, which ones I'm going to print because I'm hoping to put something together. And I procrastinated at even looking at the slides mm-hmm. because I was just filled with dread that, mm-hmm. oh, this is just going to be a bunch of crap, mm-hmm. right? And largely it was. But I was amazed that at the surprises that I found, mm-hmm. that they were photographs that I made that I could understand now. I mm-hmm. could explain to you today why they were good photographs. But at the time, I did not even give a second look to some of those images. Mm-hmm. But somehow, mm-hmm. something in my subconscious, you know, and, or whatever, recognized the potential of the moment, made the photograph, even though I couldn't identify it immediately after I had made the picture. Isn't that interesting? And I would say most times when one hears that story, mm-hmm. it's kind of, uh, uh, the, the narrative is the inside out version of that story, where I had no idea what I was doing, shooting, shooting, and then I found something on the contact sheet or in my box of chromes mm-hmm. that I recognized immediately. I recognized this genius immediately. I said, oh, wow, I can't believe I made this shot, <laughs> which I hadn't understood that I was making in the first place, right? And so, but this just telescoped. So you believe that you knew what you were doing, except you didn't, you weren't aware of it in the moment. Right. Yeah. That I was responding to something and somehow I used the various, I, I composed basically what I saw is I was composing different elements in, in a way within the frame that uh, I really didn't come to in, in a purposeful way. 
right. until more recently. And just the fact that somehow I had recognized it, largely probably because I'd seen other photographs yeah, along yeah. those lines, and I saw the sort of the similarities at yeah, that moment yeah. and was just successful enough to you know, expose properly and get it in focus. Well, but that's part of kind of being present, being there with the camera, shooting the pictures. That's how you're going to get to those accidental things and having your spidey senses tingling, mm -hmm. uh, drawing from memory, drawing from feelings, drawing from the culture at large, you know, all the pictures you've seen that use certain graphic or design devices, leading lines. You go, I'm not even sure I know what a leading line is, but I know it when I'm in the presence of it. So stuff you bring from the culture, some stuff you bring from a, a certain movie that you love, stuff you bring from memory and fear. Being there, just participating, is going to give you material. Yeah. And then then you, you interrogate the material and you move forward from there and develop from there. I have to tell you, my own experience of doing what you're doing now is often so nerve-wracking. <laughs> I actually get nauseous in a way, I, I you know, but I get nauseous and I get soul nauseous at the notion of going back through all the old stuff, the contact sheets and all those chromes that you're going back through. Because for me, it's all those great ideas that you thought you were having. You know, you see a, a dog and a balloon and a building and a guy and you go, wow, this is great. See how the dog's here and the building's there and the blah, blah, blah. And it's, uh, I have a great idea. And what this really is, this is an expression of poverty in America, or this is an expression of, you know, whatever. And you see stories that your viewers aren't going to see in that picture. And you see relationships that people aren't going to see in that picture. You are on, you know, fourth gear of kind of connecting dots and really seeing pictures, which then on the contact sheets, they're nothing. Yeah. And in your box of chromes, it's nothing. And I just, I'm actually so embarrassed when I am looking through those. I go, oh, I can't believe. Did I actually think this was going to be something interesting? Ugh. And I go, I have like this whole shame spiral that I go into when I look at all that stuff. And then thank goodness, you know, every once in a while, something great pops up. You go, oh, okay, fine, fair enough. It's about time. But otherwise, you just, I personally say, man, how smart I thought I was, how interesting I thought I was. I, I believed I was pursuing this graphic idea, or I was, I thought that, you know, the dog in the balloon could make a statement about, you know, this American life, but they weren't. But there on that street corner, I was fully engaged with the notion that they were. So, so was the problem that, that you were imposing what your own meaning upon that rather than allowing the interplay of those objects within the frame to sort of reveal themselves in whatever natural innate, innate way that yes and for me that's always been where both my best successes and my deepest failures lie the best successes are that you're photographing with intention, as, as one of my dear friends uh, likes to say, and I, I tell my students this, you know, the photograph happens on purpose. Every once in a while, you'll be standing on a street corner and a clown on fire will parachute into the scene. And that's your <laughs> photograph and now you win, right? Because you got that clown, that's great. But mostly, you're, you create the photographs. Uh, the dog in the balloon, for example, um, they, you can't get them in the same frame unless you move left and go down on one knee and now suddenly they hove into the same space together, right? So you are creating that photograph by having 
a premonition about how it could go. I'm going to get forward. I'm going to move back. I'm going to change my lens. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. You're creating it in your mind. You're looking into the future and seeing how all this stuff would be if only I blah, blah, blah. Increase the depth of field, decrease the depth of field, etc. And so you are creating that picture in your mind as a photograph, a two-dimensional artifact of your three-dimensional experience you are responsible for the creation of that thing. It doesn't exist in real life. The photograph, a two-dimensional art- artifact, only exists because I moved left or right, I got down on one knee, and I got, I crammed all that crap in the same frame. That's mm-hmm. why that picture comes into existence. So it's not really about the thing expressing itself in real life. It's about me willing those relationships, those graphic relationships, into the same frame. So, okay, that's great. The obvious part about the failure is you can overthink it, you can push it too hard, you can contrive it too much, you can think there's something there that isn't. So when I look at my best pictures and my and my quote-unquote worst pictures, if you can say it that way, the difference is razor thin between a photograph which is so well put together, you go, oh, that's great, look at all the stuff, how it works, and then the one right next to it, which is just... You went too far. There's too much sweat on it. There's too much effort in that picture. It's really clear that you were overworking it and that there's not as much there as you wish there were. And if I could say, I think what I'm learning as these years go by and as we get deeper and deeper into this postmodern moment is that the kind of standards I grew up with, which are about that effort, go down low, use the wide lens, really make things pop, right? That kind of effort, which was the coin of the realm in the 60s, 70s, 80s, right? All those street photographers who are really engaged and really jumping around and high angles and low angles and, you know, the, the womp at the corners of a wide lens. All that drama that we thought was poetic and cool and honest and real is distrusted in this postmodern age. There's no reason to believe. There's no empirical reason to believe that Robert Frank actually had a line on the spirit of America. But we believe for many years he did. Those people, Gary Winogrand, were thought to understand the poetics of the modern urban life. Eh, I still love those folks, and I would be happy to champion them. But in the postmodern moment, people think, "Ah, just because a dude is jumping around, showing off, doing the crazy angles, that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a, a special access to what is true about urban life. That's just them writhing. That's not, it's, it's perhaps nothing more than them writhing. And so in this postmodern moment, as you are super well aware, deadpan is kind of the vibe of the moment we stand back a little further Our lenses are less wide. Uh, We look at things at eye level. We scrutinize them frontally, right? That's just this idea of taking the author out of the picture and letting what's there be there, letting what's there be the thing that the viewer scrutinizes without the intrusion of the author and his or her privilege, his or her uh, uh, agenda, which might be so bone deep that they don't even know they have one. But that's, again, that's the postmodern notion is that all these pictures have codes and layers which are 
political and colonial and psychological, and we don't even know they're in there, but we are perpetrating them nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I only believe half of that. <laughs> I, 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 get, I get that that's the mood of the moment, and I get why certain photographers, Andreas Skursky, rise above the rest because their point of view embodies the spirit of the moment. I still writhe more than I should. I still use the crazy wide lens and I get low and I get high and I'm doing some groovy angles because I really want to get everything in the frame. But I do it less than I used to because I just, I recognize that that effort, mm -hmm. that sweat in and of itself doesn't make the picture sing. And in fact, that's what's going to sink the picture. Yeah. There's this obsession. The, 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 the first obsession, of course, is the equipment. Right. The second is with the technique. Yeah. And the, I think that the only way for the photographer to really move beyond that is choosing a, a subject matter that will allow them, that we will create a situation where they're challenged in some way beyond simply understanding and mastering the, the technique. Oh, yeah. Now, you documented your family mm -hmm. uh, for about a decade or more. About a decade. And Ten years. Yeah. the impetus for those initial images were, like we just talked about, you just trying to understand the camera and the technical side. Literally true. And then it, you suddenly realize at some point that there's more here. Yep. There's a story here that I have the opportunity to do with the camera something that is kind of like what I've seen before, but is going to demand something different of me mm -hmm. than anything I've done before. So how did that sort of shape this concept that we're talking about in terms of moving beyond the mechanics of making a photograph right. and actually saying something with a photograph? Right, right, right. And so to kind of to reiterate what you were saying, I taught myself photography after college, practicing on my family. And it started out simply as that. Uh, it, frankly, I had practiced on my friends there in Lansing, Michigan. I, I went to Michigan State and then lived for four years thereafter in in that college town or in the big city next door, Lansing, Michigan, uh, and waited tables and taught myself how to be a photographer. Um, and, and I had burned my friends out. They were we, we, we would sit and play Pinochle and drink beer on a Friday night, and I'd photograph the crap out of them. And after a while, they that wore them out, and they banned my camera from the room. Uh, and so I took it home with me just to do that same stuff with my family on a, on a Thanksgiving weekend. So I wanted to learn... I wanted to learn how to do what was there. And what was there was available light and people you knew, intimate photographs. And when I say intimate, I simply mean, you know, sitting next to somebody at the table and then turning to them with the 28 millimeter lens and photographing them while they eat dinner, right? Uh, how do you learn how to do that? How do you get away with that? How do you frame that? Where does the focus go? And how do we expose this stuff with 400 speed black and white film under crap lighting conditions? <laughs> All of that stuff that I figured I might use in the future, I was beginning to practice then. Two things happened. One, as the years went by, their story began to change. And as I went with them, uh, my pictures naturally recorded that story. In the beginning, in 1980, 81, they were not in trouble. My mom had always been sickly. She was a smoker who had a smoker's cough since I was a baby. And it was, it was one of those 
particularly apocalyptic smoker's coughs. I mean, she she wheezed right up from her toes. And uh, when I was a baby, I thought my mom was dying. So, so I I, I always I would. I was always aware of her sickliness and more, her mortality was kind of always in a corner of my radar, but she wasn't dying. That wasn't a real thing that was really on the table. And my dad had had heart bypass surgery. He was diabetic, but his imminent death wasn't actually on the front burner either. It was just people I knew who I could photograph. But as those character arcs developed, I say those character arcs, as they got sicker, and as my youngest brother became a little wilder and then a high school alcoholic, and as my other brother became frustrated with his life and kind of bogged down in his life and, and angry for reasons that he didn't quite understand, as, as those couple, three, four years went by, by 1985, there was actually a story. There was a story that you could see if you followed my contact sheets. If you'd walked in the front door, you wouldn't necessarily have seen the story, but you look at the contact sheets for those five years and you go, ooh, I get how this is moving in a direction, four different directions, but but in in common, they're all moving toward a certain kind of perdition. So the story itself simply emerged simply because I was in the room over a period of time. Uh, but then also, and the thing that really moved me from the beginning was subtext. Uh, because I knew those folks, I could photograph my mother drinking a cup of coffee, and she'd have a certain look in her eye. And you wouldn't necessarily have seen it, but I saw it, and I went, ooh, that's that look. It's her, it's her look of, uh, of resentment, or it's her look of this or that, because my dad said a thing. And that's the subtext. That's the thing where you go, oh, I see that she's tense. I think she's, she's thinking about the past, and she's, remember, she's wondering about the blah, blah. She's, I got that there were layers of information, a history of resentment, unfulfilled promises, betrayals, thrumming underneath the life of that moment. You could, you could, I could feel the cogs in that machine. And that was just the machine. It was the story of their lives. And that was the subtext. It was under there somewhere. And I thought, wow, this is great. I got it in the photograph. But I was smart enough. I, I don't know why I was smart enough. I was smart enough to know, even in that moment when I was 24 years old, that other people wouldn't necessarily see that. And I think that's the thing I try to tell my students is that, you know, uh, you can have a an intense personal experience in this three-dimensional moment, right? Especially if you're a photojournalist or if you're working in the world where something crazy is happening. It's, it's a cop situation. Somebody crashed a car. Um, it's super exciting. There are smells. There are sounds. There are sirens. There's smoke. Uh, you are bringing your personal material into the scene. Uh, recollection. Fear. Memory, uh, dread, uh, all of that stuff is occurring to you in this current three-dimensional moment, but none of that guarantees that the photographs you make of this moment are going to be any good. Mm -hmm. They might be cool to you. You might go, oh, look, here's an artifact of when I was having an intense personal situation, right? There I was. Wow. But it's not something that other folks are necessarily going to read the power of yeah. unless you communicate that right and so that was probably one of the smartest things smartest unlikely things that I ever 
taught myself at the very beginning was you can feel this subtext with your family, but other people might not. So you have to try to figure out how to get it across and not hitting people on the head with a hammer. The photograph cannot be about mom's resentment. You've just got to reveal somehow mom's resentment just in a corner of the frame, a little misdirection like a, a magician might use, uh, just the, the slightest fluttering implication like a poet might use, somehow try to intimate that maybe there's something other than the picture over in a corner of the picture. Mm -hmm. Hey everybody, this is Ivadian X, and uh, as part of my mid-roll, I wanted to do something a little different, so I decided to bring on somebody who is always a part of the show, but that you rarely hear from, and that's my wife. Cynthia. Say hello, Cynthia. Hello, Cynthia. Oh, God. <laughs> well, you know, she is the quiet partner, rel relatively quiet partner on the show, but believe me, in real life, she isn't. I'm not. Quiet, I really am not. <laughs> but, you know, we. she's the bedrock of everything that I do from the candid frame. Oh, she was there from me. the very beginning when, I, when the idea popped into my head, and she's been, you know, my, my biggest cheerleader, my number one fan in terms of uh, me making the show everything that it is. And, you know, we're always talking about how grateful we are for the, the pe people who support the show, especially those who've been helping us in Patreon and by providing a financial uh, uh, support. And I thought I'd, I'll, I'd allow her. That, that probably doesn't sound right. I'd, I'd invite her. Thank you. To, to, to tell you how thankful she is for your support. So. I can't I, I can't say enough about how much we appreciate your support from the comments to uh, in, in terms of the podcast uh, to sharing your work um, sharing your ideas suggestions um, just everything that makes a community of photographers that much stronger and uh, we we really appreciate it so please continue to support our efforts you support our efforts it's supporting your efforts you're supporting a whole world of efforts that's good and i didn't have you didn't have to write anything down that was pretty damn good <laughs> you, you might have a future in this oh jeez! but but, but you know, a lot of a lot of you people have been donating and uh if you've been thinking about it do it today I, we, yeah. we're almost there to that goal of 100 new patreon supporters and even with just five dollars a month you, you won't believe how big of a difference that's making for us right now in terms of improving the show and taking it to a whole new level. So if you've been considering it and saying that you're going to do it, you know, put this recording on pause and go to patreon.com forward slash the candid frame and commit to $5, $10, $20, whatever you can afford or your desire and help support the show and help us reach our goal and make the candid frame even better. So Thanks, and uh, back to the show, and thanks, Cynthia. And thank you, and thank you, everyone, for just believing in the candid frame and keeping us going and continuing to be part of that community that we so much love. Amen. Amen. You said something that really struck me about your mom when you said that as a kid, because of her cough, you 
expected her to die at any moment. And oh, yes. That's, that's, for a little kid, that is intense, trying to sort of process that and yep. make, it, make it make any sense. Yep. And, you know, you're talking about the photographs that you made of your family all in different, you know, phases of decline, you know, physically well and emotionally. Yep. And, and, and it's your family. Yep. You're witnessing this <laughs> and, and no doubt causing your own pain, your own frustration, your own resentment about everything that's sort of playing out in front of your camera as, as, as much as you're thinking about your photographs, there's a lot of stuff happening inside of you. Yep. So I don't want to say the cliche that, oh, you, you, you use photography as, as a way of sort of therapy and sort of getting through it. I think it's much more complex than that. Yep. But, you know, when you think about who you were at that time, mm-hmm. making those photographs, what, what, what was really happening inside of you as a son, a brother, mm-hmm. making these photographs? What was beyond, beyond wanting to make the photographs for photograph's sake? Mm-hmm. What was that providing you? Well, it's a, that's a super great question, and there there are about fourteen answers that I can that are like the 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 little fourteen nascent answers which are bubbling in my mind. I'll I'll see if I can pick three. Um, you know, the old cliche is that you know uh, that one can use besides the clar- the cliche about the therapy. There's the kind of the other way where one doesn't use that situation as a doorway into better understanding, but actually one uses that. Uh, as a shield or guard against feeling too deeply. In other words, you go home for Christmas and you place a camera in between yourself and your mom, and that's a way of being in the room and managing your experience of the room without getting too much of it on you, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got that camera, which... Um, and I, there is an aspect of that in this but again it's a journey over years so in the beginning i think there was an aspect of using the camera as a way to manage and buffer my experience but that's even more complicated than it sounds because number one it it puts me in a position of an arbiter uh someone who has come from somewhere else a stranger who's come to town, right? I'm our boy from the past, our golden oldest boy from the past, our famous oldest boy from the past has come back from college, and now he's going to be with us. He's smarter, he's more experienced, he's the artist who is going to stand in front of us and watch us and, in a certain way, render judgment, right? Because every time you click the button, you're rendering a certain judgment. Mm -hmm. So if my brother rolls his eyes and I click, he knows I clicked and he must wonder to himself, holy shit, what did I just do that, that is, that deserved a frame of film? I rolled my eyes. So is that because I'm cool and I'm world weary and I'm interesting? Or is that because I'm a jerk and he noticed it right so everybody is in a certain way watching me watch them and i have imposed myself now as the narrator of the scene the scene isn't just evolving unto itself in real time now there's a dude here who has chosen to record this scene and he's clearly making decisions about what parts of the scene matter to him so i am reasserting myself in the family after years in college i've come back i'm reasserting myself as our smart boy who now stands in front of us 
witnessing, observing, making notes, to a certain extent, judging us. So, so I didn't intend that, or I'm surely not aware of intending that, but that is one of the effects. One of the clear effects is that I become a powerful person in the room uh, because I'm, I, I'm distancing myself and I'm imposing my vision on whatever it is you're doing. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm creating this as a photograph, which I'm going to then hoard as evidence of something, but you don't quite know what, mm-hmm. right? So part of that is me rebranding myself and the family, or may I say, updating my brand. I'm now New Coke. I used to be our cool oldest special boy. Now I'm our cool oldest special boy who has got a certain amount of power, certain experience, certain point of view, certain machine that he will deploy and he'll do some shit with us. And we're hopeless. We're helpless to stop him. You know what? And the thing just popped in my head that, that applies to this and the street photography. It's feeling a sense of control over the uncontrollable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and elsewhere in my life, so back in my college town where I lived, right? My, my parents and my family were in Detroit. I was in Lansing, about 100 miles distant. Over in Lansing, I was at loose ends. I was waiting tables at a Mexican restaurant. And in fact, that was the peak of my powers at that restaurant. I had begun as a busboy, a 25-year-old busboy at that restaurant. I had my degree in English from a Big Ten university. And at the age of 25, I was a full-time busboy in a Mexican restaurant. I was without career. I was without particular prospects. Of course, in my mind, I knew I would be a super accomplished genius in the future. But in my in real life at that moment, I was out of control. I, I lacked, I wasn't out of control. I lacked control. I didn't have prospects. I was in my darker moments, I was sure I was a loser. Mm. So now I get to go home and I get to renew my contract as our groovy son, Mm. who while everybody else is sitting at the table eating dinner, he stands, stands on a chair and makes photographs of us. That's interesting. Yeah. And it doesn't speak well of me necessarily, but it is what it is. And I'm aware that that's, that's, for me, that's a subtext in the scene. So you talk about subtext. One of the subtexts in the whole thing is if there could be a camera, a video camera, let's say, placed up in a high corner of the, of the kitchen or the living room, and if it could zoom out, it would see not only these intimate family pictures that I made, but it would see me making them who is this dude who, in the middle of everything, is changing lenses and shooting pictures of dad smoking cigarettes while mom complains about the blah, blah, mm-hmm. right? So my presence, my motives are of equal interest from a certain point of view. When I present the pictures, however, I admit that, in fact, I... I'm happy to admit that as a subtext. That's part of the scene. Part of the scene is this dude who presumes to be a narrator. But I hope to slice off that layer of complications and just show the pictures. Although in the piece of writing that I'm doing to accompany those pictures, which I've been working on for three years, it's kind of a literary memoir of some actual length. I talk about that. But, you know, there's time and a place. So in that long piece of writing. I devote several pages again and again 
to discussing who I must have been to them in those moments. Mm. But otherwise, otherwise, I let the pictures speak for themselves. You had a career as newspapers, you know, do magazine work, mm -hmm. but um, one of the things that came way after this period that we're talking about was the urban landscapes that you've been doing. Mm -hmm. And they're very different. They are very different, from right? The work. Yeah, so it's really so how did you come to that and and talk a little bit about how you came to the approach? Because I think it's kind of interesting. Because mm -hmm. uh, I read you tried a variety of different techniques Ugh. before you kind of finally settled on one, yep. which is sort of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier in terms of like mastering a technique. But in this case, it's more about finding and discovering the right tools yep. for something you're trying to say. Yep. Well, so, you know, I was, uh, so I spent those 10 years doing the family uh, and concurrently doing many of the street photographs in that body of work, as well as becoming a photojournalist. So again and again, it's all about people, people, people in space, in place. Uh, and I did that for 20 years. So as you can imagine, my, my models, the photographers that moved me the most were photographers who did that, right? All the usual suspects, Robert Frank, Winogrand, Diane Arbus, Lee Friedlander, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the f newspaper magazine photographers of the day, many of whom are remembered by the ages, you know, uh, David Burnett and Eugene Richards, uh, you know, Eugene Richards was like Saint Eugene to me, <laughs> right? And then you can imagine that it must have been the magnum agent that that I paid a lot of attention to because that's where all those people lived was at Magnum, right? Well, in 1997, uh, Magnum started publishing books through Fiden, which is, I, I think, a, a British publishing company, in any case, European. Uh, they started publishing books through Fiden collections from the agency on different themes. They hadn't really done that too much in the past, but they, they started with a splash. This one curious book called Magnum Landscapes. And I looked at it, I said, Magnum Landscapes? What? Because Magnum is about photographing uh, the human condition, the human spirit, uh, current events, current events in the human cavalcade. So different wars, different uh, political campaigns, whatever, right? That's what Magnum does. Uh, so this book, Magnum Landscapes, threw me, and I actually thought it was, in a, in, a, in a kind of way, in a smart aleck way, I actually thought it was sacrilegious. Like, what? Why would they do that? That's not their wheelhouse, and that's not what I want from them. So, but I bought the book anyway, because I was slavish in my devotion <laughs> to the Magnum collection. So I bought the book and, you know, it's like anything else. I, I, it, if it was something that I had loved, I'd, I'd look through it once or twice to confirm that this is something I love. Then you put it on the bookshelf. It becomes a trophy of, you know, your love and it becomes indicative of who I am. I'm the guy who owns that book. But this book, I just didn't understand. So I looked at it again and again and again and again, a hundred times to figure out why the heck do we care about Josef Kudelka's landscapes. Why do we care about Gene Richards' landscapes? And it got to the point, because I looked at it so often, that I started internalizing something of what they were trying to get across, to the point where I said, okay, fine. I'm going to go see if I can make some of mine, because I'm just dying to see if, if I can perform some resonance with those photographs. And so I started photographing, as I thought they might, 
I photographed with my fake Leicas, uh, 35 millimeter Olympus, little baby Olympuses with a 28 and a 35 millimeter lens. Uh, and, uh, I, I shot for months and, uh, gathered all my film and finally processed it. So I, I shot for a long time before I actually looked at what I have done. And when I looked at it, I was so surprised and very, very disappointed. The pictures weren't what I wanted them to be, which was strange because by this point, I had been a professional for 15 years and I knew how to go over there, stand in front of whatever, uh, with whatever lens and the film and the strategies and the notions. And I could make the picture with great technique and I knew as I was driving back to the office uh, that I had something good, right? So you have that experience. You go, yes, I got it. I'm going to put the camera in the bag. I'm going to get in the car. I am driving away. I know I got something. I know I do, right? But in this case, I had nothing. Again and again and again and again, I had nothing, nothing, nothing. I thought, how is that possible? How is it that I went and I made those photographs and they become nothing? Because that's not how I roll, Right. So I thought, oh, well, maybe it's the format. So I switched to, I had a Hasselblad and I had a Mamiya, uh, not a Mamiya, a, um, oh God, what is that other really crappy one that the wedding photographers used? Anyway, a square. Yashica mat? It wasn't a Yashica mat. It was, oh, I'm going to think of it in like three minutes and just blurt Kiev, it out. Raleigh? No, it was a real brand that real people used, but it was, it was, it was kind of junky. I'm sorry to say. Oh, okay. I, in fact, maybe I shouldn't figure out the name of it. <laughs> I won't blurt it out. Anyway, the point is, I, so I went to Square and, and, and 120 film and I reshot all that stuff and shot some more and I got the film and it, it just didn't work. I went, wow, that's so weird. It must be the format. So then I had a, a Super D Graflex, a four by five. It's actually an SLR four by five. And so I, I went and I reshot everything with that. And I looked at those. Those didn't work either. I thought, I don't understand. I keep changing the format. I keep this. I keep that. I keep changing. This. Nothing's working. It just doesn't feel right. It feels ordinary. feels old hat. We've been there, done that. It feels hackneyed. For once in my, for, for, for the first time in a long, long time, what I'd do, done had no life to it, had no point of view to it, had no pizzazz to it. And that, at that point, 15 years in, 18 years in came as a surprise to me because I had long outgrown, you know, the, the, the freshman jitters. Right. So I put it all aside. And then one day, a year later, my wife bought me a Holga, a plastic Holga at a garage sale. So, okay, fine, whatever. A couple of days after that, nine 11 happened. I was then working in magazines and because those magazines, their editors are all in New York city Obviously, their attention was drawn uh, uh, entirely to Ground Zero and all of their resources, all their pages, all their efforts, all their money went to recording the stories that were emerging from Ground Zero. And then a couple weeks later, Afghanistan. We had a brand new war in Afghanistan. So for months, I didn't have any work. The New Yorkers were concentrating on those things. They didn't need me to make photographs of surfers or a politician in LA or a scientist in Irvine, right? Which is what I had been doing for them. So I walked, I walked and I walked and I walked and I photographed my own alienation and horror, my confusion. I was just as heartbroken as everyone else in the country and I, the world. And I chose to work my heartbreak out by making 
photographs that I knew would suck. I was aware of the reputation of that Holga camera, and I recalled too vividly my own failed attempts to make street photographs. So I thought, great, I'm going to go make some more of, I say street photographs, I mean urban landscapes, my own failed attempts at urban landscapes. I said, great, in this moment where the world is falling apart, in this moment where I believe nothing will ever be the same again, I was seized with a kind of nihilism. And so I went out into the streets taking my nihilistic uh, 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 feelings uh, and the Holga in order to make pictures that I knew wouldn't work in a style that I knew I had failed to master uh, with this camera that I knew would never render things the way I hoped they would. It's such a crap camera. I'm going to go waste time. I'm going to go waste money. I'm going to go spend three weeks or a month making photographs of my grief out there in L.A., and when I finally look at them, I'm sure that they will suck as much as those other ones did. In fact, trebly so, because now I'm using a crap camera. At least before I was using decent cameras, a series of them, but now I'm using a crap camera to do pictures that I'm, I've demonstrated I don't know how to do. So this will be great. This is a cool waste of time. This is a cool waste of money. I'm going to throw my money in a toilet because my heart is so broken and I'm sure that everything henceforward is just screwed, right? So I did that. I shot for two months and then I processed the film and I loved it. And I thought, what? Why do I love it? Apparently what I was after all along was a, a, a feeling of being at some remove from the thing that you're photographing, putting a layer between you and it. And the, the immediate layer is how crappy that lens is. So the, the lens is uh, uh, vignetted, the lens falls in and out of focus at different points in the frame, right? This $30 camera with a plastic lens made without quality control in Shanghai, it made for children, this camera it, it makes bad pictures. So I put. So at the very least, there's that level of uh, there's that layer of badness. That there's that layer of of Vaseline, for lack of a better word, in between you and what you're trying to do. The camera just can't see what you want it to see. So that's great. That puts things at a distance. It makes it like a copy of a copy, a Xerox of a Xerox, a staticky. Uh, a, a approximation of something that you wanted to show. And all that's really left is the bare architecture, the graphic, the, the biggest strokes are all that's left. You photograph a building and we can see the silhouette of a building, but we can't see the, the curlicues and the architecture. And we can't see the little blah blahs in, in the design. All we can see is this graphic sweep of this big damn building and maybe the silhouette of a dude down in the corner, but we can't read him either, right? And I didn't realize but that's what I was after. And about a year later, I realized that kind of what I was photographing was the sound of the look of music from another room. I remember when I was in second grade, seven years old or so, uh, in, in, in that one school year, I had a series of all the childhood illnesses, but one right after the other. It was rubella, and it was scarlet fever, and it was measles, and it was all this crap. I spent half of the year just in my, in my bedroom, not in school. And I remember distinctly, my mother in another part of the house 
going about her housewifely business, cleaning and, and, and doing the laundry and et cetera, et cetera. And she would carry with her from room to room a transistor radio. Uh, and we lived in Detroit in those days. And so it would be Smokey Robinson and, you know, blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that, little Beatles songs, all these different songs from the top 40 on her transistor radio, echoing and traveling down hallways around corners, underneath doorways to get to me. And so when I would hear those songs after they had traveled that distance from the living room or the kitchen or the wherever, uh, they were stripped of so much of their dynamic. They were stripped of the highs, stripped Mm -hmm. of the lows. Um, They were only notional as songs. It was the architecture. They got a little louder. You could tell that. They they became bright and and, uh, ebullient. You could tell that. The architecture of the song you could get. Certain of the emotions you could get. Certain of the big, heavy drum beats you could get. But everything else, the details were all stripped away. And I found that to be a very moving experience when I was a kid, all those months in the bed, right? So I realized that in a way, that's what I was after here was notional pictures. So a picture of a thing where you knew it was a thing. And my arrangement of those large moments within the frame mattered. But the detail, not so much. The clothes that a person is wearing, in fact, people themselves were not particularly accessible to this camera. People became notional. They became, a man became every man. A woman became anonymous or she stood in for people in general, right? Because you couldn't really get what her face was. All this stuff you could arrange and the big gestures would come through. The architecture of the picture would come through. The notion of the picture would come through, but the details wouldn't. And I realized that's what I'm after. And the simple reason I think is We've seen all that before. Again, this is that postmodern urge, which believe me, I don't have any of this stuff in my mind when I was doing those pictures. And I only believe half of what I read, you know, from the canon of postmodern literature. That's a fact. But I got that. I had seen a trillion pictures. I've seen pictures of people walking on streets. I've seen silhouettes of dudes. I've studied pictures for 35 years. Those textures are old-fashioned to me. The details, the fingernails, the eyebrows, the bricks in a building, I, I, I've been there. And when I see that, that looks like amateur work for me, to me, especially when it's in black and white. I mean, that just so reminds me of, you know, freshman year in college, everybody photographed haystacks and, and, and broken down barns and, you know, the, the, the texture of some bricks, right? Uh, so, Let's get rid of that. Let's negate that. Let's let's imply that, but we don't have to state that. And let's let the picture be about its architecture. So that's where the whole notion of those pictures came from, the urban landscapes. And then simply, after 15 years of doing that damn stuff, I moved those ideas into the color realm and started shooting those digitally with a brilliant light. And that's where you get these current pictures, the brilliant light creates a layer of heightened information in between the actual picture and the viewing of it. 
it's really fascinating this whole idea which seems which is kind of antithetical to the way a lot of people think of photographs especially now with cameras with 100 megapixel with more resolution more and more detail yeah, yeah, yeah. that's going to make a photograph and you know you speak to the idea that sometimes stripping away things yep, yep. make for a better better photograph but absolutely the, but the other idea that that uh, that I get oh, and I take away from what you're, you're saying is the idea of resisting this almost automatic impulse to create perfect images. Yeah. And because I had that experience when I was in New Orleans for the first time, I went out there with my DSLR and after two days, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't explain why, Mm -hmm. but I just had, I just got my first iPhone and I began photographing with that. And for that entire trip, I just photographed on my phone. And it was such a liberating experience because instead of trying to make these precise, exact, controlled images, I was welcoming chance, serendipity, failure, making choices in terms of how I handled this camera phone yep. in ways that I never would have considered with an SLR. Yep. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to shoot overhead. I'm going to put it between my legs. I'm just going to extend my arm out. I'm right. not even going to bother to see how carefully I can frame right. this shot. And the body of work that I produced from from that week alone was transformative. Yeah. Because I looked at it, not just in terms of the individual images that were, were good, but just as a, a body of work that showed me that there was a completely different way of seeing that I had sort of never seriously, seriously considered for myself. Mm-hmm. I had seen other people making these photographs, but I never had thought that it would be my path. Mm-hmm. And then when I saw them, it was the challenge for me from that point was, okay, how can I create the same kind of space mm-hmm. when I am using my other mm-hmm. quote unquote mm-hmm. real camera, which was a challenge mm-hmm. in and of itself oh, because yeah. it was like trying to get into that sort of disconnected space that I was with the camera phone yep. was a bear yep. when I, as soon as I picked up an SLR. Yep. Yep. Well, a couple quick responses. One, the obvious thing is that, and this occurred to me a couple months ago. I'm sure it's not news to a lot of a lot of people who pay attention. Um, you know, we are surrounded every day. Just I say every day, every for the sake of conversation, let's say every photograph you look at, every banner photograph on a website, every picture in the newspaper, every advertisement, every matchbook, every we're inundated by photographs. I mean, I go to my uh, I go to put gas in my car, and I got the little the little video movie right there on the on the on the um, pump. But all these photographs have been super managed. I mean, they are all touched by Photoshop and and Lightroom and everything else. Nine ways from Sunday, tons of money is expended to make every picture you look at as perfect as it can possibly be. We are surrounded by perfect pictures perfect unto themselves right so it might be a photograph which is is a, a supposed to look spontaneous like oh this is this crazy crazy picture i made well but but by the time it gets through the art department and the thing in the other place and and the pre-press people that is a perfect version of the spontaneous picture so you know god bless you for for in your professional life or in your dsr life thinking that things need to be perfect because that's the example that you live in. Um, but also I think there's a thing that 
we older folks have, which is usually to our benefit, but maybe sometimes we need to jettison that. Uh, And I, I say older folks, I mean anybody over maybe 40 or 45 who had to learn with film cameras and film in dark rooms probably Mm -hmm. right all that stuff was really hard to do as as we never tire telling the young folks it it takes a long time to learn how to expose film when it's all manual it takes a long time to make sure all your focuses are in focus uh back in the 80s back in the 70s uh darkroom work etc all that stuff takes years to learn and a great deal of effort constant attention and it's a it's it's 12 different skills that you have to master uh, and you got to nail each one before you can really kind of move on to the next. And so we hold that effort, that process above the younger folks. We say, look, you guys with your autofocus and your auto exposure and your Photoshop and your this and your that, you could just point your camera at anything and 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 create a cool picture. In fact, I remember uh, when I was doing the Holga work in New York City in the early 2000s, I'm laboring to make a photograph at dusk of the Empire State Building. I got my tripod and my meter, and I, my you know I was using a long exposure and all that stuff. It's very nerve wracking. I think, oh, I hope I get it right. And then some dude with a cell phone just walks by with his girlfriend and waves his cell phone in the general direction of the Empire State Building, clicks it with his thumb while he's talking to her, puts it back in his pocket, and I'm thinking, you know what? I bet he nailed it. <laughs> I bet he freaking nailed it because. The camera nailed it, right? And so, but we oldsters, we think, oh, you see, that's impoverished. It's morally impoverished. It's spiritually impoverished. It's artistically impoverished because these folks don't actually know what they're doing. They haven't put in the time or the effort. And they couldn't explain it if they had to. And I, I, and I think many of my older friends, we have a chip on our shoulder because we believe that our effort sanctifies our photographs. The long history of my education, learning about different lenses, learning about this, uh, uh, you know, experimenting with that, that sanctifies my pictures. It doesn't. It doesn't sanctify your pictures. There are 23-year-olds who are waving a cell phone at the Empire State Building who, for better or worse, are making great pictures. And at the end of the day, you know, you just have to say, well, how is that picture? That's a pretty great picture. The people who have an eye, I mean, I had an eye. I had an eye when I was 17. But it would take me 10 years to be able to manifest what I was seeing and create a picture of it. And if somebody can do that at the age of 21 with a cell phone, waving it at whatever, we are going to have to live with that. I'm not saying I like it, but we as a culture, we must live with that. So for you to say, as a guy who knows how to use this SLR, I've spent hours and years learning how to use my SLR. I'm going to put it down. I'm going to pick up the cell phone and just do crazy pictures, however, whatever, Pictures which, if I had my DSLR, I'd never make. They're beneath my dignity. They are are not sanctified by my years of effort and education. This is just some crazy crap I'm going to do on a Tuesday afternoon in New Orleans. Well, guess what? You might make some cool pictures that move you and that send you in another direction, with or without that DSLR, with Mm -hmm. or without that, that cell phone. I think we have to be open to that. But the difficulty is we've and I speak for myself as much as anybody else, is that you become so invested in all the time and money that you've, in, 
you put in yeah. to get where you are now yeah. and to have to sort of take a step back yeah. and to just say, okay, this stuff doesn't matter anymore yeah. or some variation of that yeah. is difficult because yeah. we're really prideful. Yeah. Oh, we don't, yes. we, we don't want to say, oh, you yeah. know, this is not working anymore. Or this was a mistake or, you know, what I'm doing now doesn't work. And yep. am I willing to start all over again? Yep. And, and sometimes you do. Yep. You have to start from scratch. And for us older folks, yep. that's a really hard thing to do, especially if we're known for, say, a, a certain body of work, mm-hmm. a certain style. Yep. And to say, well... I'm leaving that behind, and and especially if you're earning money from it, everyone yep. looks th- looks at you like you're stupid or crazy or yep. you know certifiable. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but I think that some of the greatest uh, artists that are out there have reinvented themselves yep. countless times, and there, of course, there are other people out there who've been doing the same stick for their entire lives, yep. and their masters have it. Yep. But for me, I know when I'm getting buggy from having done this stuff before yep. having made these same images and for me I, I just reach a point where I just can't stomach doing it yet again right 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 and but fortunately we are in a position now where you can always do something different especially as you interact with the technology because every other week there's something to diff there's something different to do stuff with mm-hmm. right yeah. uh, different apps different co- uh, formats different ways of capturing I always remind myself and I'm, I'm, I have to tell you I'm not great at it I'm not I'm not the new man I'm not a modern man I'm still my stubborn old self that's for sure but I keep trying to remind myself that we're in history now I mean and we all know it right we know that the world has changed 14 times since 2001 the rate of change is spectacular and it only keeps getting faster we're in history now this is a spectacular spasm in the history of the planet with everything digital and it's it's not just cameras, of course. It's every single thing in my life. The music I listen to, my access to this and that. You know, everything is changing so super fast. And 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 so, when it's possible to, when you can stomach doing it, you just have to shut up, throw stuff away, and grab on to a new thing if you can. Mm-hmm. And bring what is most important along your values, your skills, your point of view, your imagination, uh, you know, the way you are with people. You bring all that along, and if it were a competition, that's a thing you would have on some younger folks or some other folks. You know, it's not all the camera, but increasingly it is somewhat the camera. Yeah. It's not all the platform. It's not all Photoshop, but it you know it's a it's a, these are essential tools that we all must use and throw away our pride and move it along because we we grew up on the way other side of this historical mm-hmm. divide. I mean, we historically we grew up three hundred years ago. My last question that I ask each guest, I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to mm. discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Wow. Well, so my, my first, so the question I ask myself is, is it, it, must it be some famous old dude who I, I want to insist that, uh, you know, all, all you newbies look into or someone that no one has heard of. Um, 
I'm going to recommend, well, I'm going to answer twice. So I'll, I, I must always recommend Lee Friedlander, right? Mm-hmm. I, I happen to think that the breadth of his work, uh, and just, I mean, you know, by luck, he has lived forever and he keeps working. So he keeps kind of creating new work over time. The breadth of his work, I would argue, makes him the great American photographer. Um, so, you know, I, I got to go to him. But um, someone, uh, someone new and interesting that I wish you all would look at there. I'll tell you what. There are two people here in L.A. who I really am enjoying their work lately. Safia, Safi, Aliyah, mm-hmm. Shia Beck. Um, so you figure out how to spell that. Safi, Aliyah, Shia Beck. Uh, she actually does, and I didn't plan it this way, but she does. She's managing her early career kind of the way I did, right? So she photographs in public at burlesque and kind of groovy postmodern strip shows here in LA and but she also has I think finished uh, uh, a body of work about her father in his declining years mm-hmm. uh, also I'm a big fan of hers yeah right great. yeah and and she actually she can talk about her work so well you put her on your oh, list she, she's she knows she's coming here all right good and there's another guy named David Ingraham who happens to be a uh, fellow Michigander who found his way to L.A. I, you know, I liked his work for years on Instagram. I thought, who is this guy? I, I kind of, I, I, I really liked his work. I didn't want to look at it too much because I thought this is kind of like the pictures that I want to make, <laughs> right? So I, I want to pretend I haven't seen his version of them. Uh, but great work here in L.A. using the landscape, using people as they move through the landscape. And then I just met him a couple weeks ago, and uh, a really cool guy, and a and a nice guy, and we were talking, talking. And he said, "Oh, I'm old David Ingraham." I went, "Oh, that's you! <laughs> wow, man, you're good. I like you." So those are local folks. Let, I'm gonna make my I'm gonna peg my answer to the local folks. I, I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I knew I was going to enjoy uh, talking with you, and you you didn't disappoint me. Good, good. I'm glad. I'm delighted. I've, I've had a, I have to tell you, I woke up with a headache. I had this headache sitting on my eyeballs all day. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. <laughs> so I think it's maybe kept me from jumping on the table and waving my arms around too much, which is to your benefit. <laughs> good for you. I didn't go crazy. Thanks to Thomas for sharing his time and story. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting his website at alamanphoto.com. And I will be in D.C. in May for the Focus on the Story Photographic Conference. The International Photo Festival will feature some of the world's best photojournalists and documentary photographers, as well as talks, photo walks, and workshops, of which I'm teaching one. If you want to sign up for my workshop or just want to find out more about the event, visit FocusOnTheStory.org. And remember to check out my YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography by pulling images from listeners like you who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr Poll. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. In it, I translate how to see and use light and shadow, line and shape, color and gesture to make great photographs. It's more than how to make a good picture, but how you can develop a personal and intimate way of seeing and documenting the world around you. You can order the book today 
And when you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PARELLA40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frames, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please take the time to write a review in the iTunes Store, Spotify, the Google Play Store, or wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Thanks to Eric Weaver and Kevin O'Connell for their five star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Philip, John Floyd, and Andres Lopez for their recent contributions. I so appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandorframe.com. And we also have an Alexa app, so download the skill and listen to the show that way. The Candor Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer, Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at ebodyonex. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.